Welcome to Glitch Cube. We're a gaming podcast, and each week we take a deeper look into the art of video games. I'm Christian. I'm Chris. And welcome back, and thank you guys for joining us on another fun and exciting week as we dive deep into the recesses of gaming culture. Uh, this week we are going to be going into some of the dark ages of gaming. Uh, some of the things that might be considered failures, rejects, all that fun stuff uh, from big companies like Nintendo, failed consoles, and even uh, bigger companies tearing apart to then just kind of self-implode due to their own ego. That's for damn sure. <laughs> but we got some great games set up for you, a really fun console discussion as well. So I figured we might as well just hop right into it because there's a lot to discuss this week. What do you think? Let's about do that? it. Cool. Yeah, let's jump right into this disaster. <laughs> let's go into it. So first off, let's go back in time a little bit to 1995. Ooh, and great year. Yeah, I feel like we've been going to 95 a lot lately. It's a, lot of, a big year in gaming, for a sure. Of, a lot of stuff happened. There was a lot of experimentation during that time, which is cool to see, but there's what there's also a lot of failures that happened to come out of that year as well. Yeah. And some pretty bad ones, too. So we're going to be touching on one of those right now, and that is b the wonderful console, the Virtual Boy by Nintendo. Oh, boy. Whew. So this console... It has a pretty lengthy history to it, and it's a very interesting idea when you really get down to the nitty-gritty of it. During this time, virtual reality was kind of the big buzzword around there. I mean, even NASA was developing a virtual reality console during that time to help with training for flight simulators and things like that. Now, Nintendo saw this and figured, oh, this might be a good time to kind of get into it. So they hunted down a new bit of hardware that they felt could revolutionize gaming culture as a whole and kind of jumpstart this whole idea into VR. Now, as the production went on, they kind of stirred away from the idea of it being VR uh, and kind of went more towards it being, a, you know, like a personal console, your own personal screen for you, one screen, one person, uh, so because of the limitations of this device. But before we go into the launch, I feel like we need to go back a little bit further about back to 1985 and talk about Alan Becker. So Alan Becker was a professor at Cambridge, and he actually developed what he called the uh, the looking glass, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, no, the private eye. That's what it was, the private eye. And he was he actually came up with the idea while he was on a plane and he wanted to have a high-resolution screen that didn't eat up a bunch of power that was really portable. And at that time, CRT or CRTs were a little bit too power-hungry, and LCDs weren't actually a thing yet. So he went for the next best thing whenever it came to a budget, right? And that was LEDs. So LED screens, they aren't that great to be honest not at all <laughs> and whenever he broke it down even more because he was trying to you know do things on a budget he opted for the cheapest color led as well which was red Ugh. so the entire screen was just red that's the only color that he used to portray and now right now that might seem kind of like a weird thing to do or a little jarring to the eye but when you look at what was around back then, like common day laptops at that time only 
used one color as well, and it was green. But they did different shades of like this murky green, but it just wasn't very visually appealing, and it was very power hungry for the system. So this was kind of the next best thing that he could do with the limited budget he had. Remember, this is kind of like a garage project for him, right? Yeah. So he develops a private eye, and then after a while, he starts kind of hearing about VR as well. We start getting into like the 90s. Uh, private Eye is doing pretty well. It kind of reminds you, like it reminded me of like Google Lens, right? It's on that huh. same, it's on that same like side where at, when it first was developed, it was literally just for one eye. It was one mm-hmm. screen. And one of their big caveats on it was at having a one inch screen, um, it can actually appear to be a 12 inch screen for the user due to the amount of depth that they were able to create because of the true blacks from the LEDs and whatnot, right? So it actually sounds pretty interesting. So when VR started becoming the buzzword, they actually decided to strap two of these private eyes to a welder's mask and try and figure out how to get it to, you know, create that VR, that full immersion within it. And one of the ways that they did it or was really interesting. Like they found out a way to create the illusion of depth by not moving the LEDs themselves, but by incorporating a mirror that actually like oscillated back and forth about 50 times a second. And that created the illusion of movement for these LEDs. And he actually called that system the scan linear array or the SLA. And it worked. It was actually doing pretty well, but it just wasn't really picking up the way they wanted it to. So let's just kind of go a little bit further into the future a little bit. We're going into 1991 at this point. Um, It's still four years out of development from, you know, the actual Virtual Boy. We're still kind of in the private eye lens. And this bit of hardware ends up going across the desk of Gunpei Yokoi who is a designer at Nintendo, very famous designer. He made Game & Watch um, and a lot of different things. And he's actually the person who made Game Boy, which, uh, as we all know, is an amazing hit, right? Mm -hmm. And you can see the correlation Game Boy, Virtual Boy. So that they're trying to kind of create a a family there. But the this naming convention is potentially one of the reasons why this system kind of failed in the long run. So once Gungpei uh, jumped on with uh, with Becker, the code name for the Virtual Boy was actually VR32 because it was supposed to be a 32-bit system, and this is Nintendo's answer for VR, which also created much more confusion in the press when it was finally coming out, and they realized that this isn't actually VR. So obviously, we know lots of problems here. So actually, one of the big things that's really interesting about the Virtual Boy is that they were trying to do head tracking and they were able to actually do it in a tank simulator game. Now, head tracking, as we know in VR now, is very difficult to do and getting that timing right is very, very difficult. And it has some very interesting outcomes that come along (laughs) with it. For one, people get really sick. I, I don't know about you. Have you tried VR? Oh, yeah. So it's it's weird. Yeah. Like, what was your experience with it? Because I get really, really motion sick when I play VR or anything like I hate it. So I had two experiences, um, both PSVR. Uh, The first game was that Star Wars, like 
demo or whatever that mm. was kind of like, oh, this is what VR is like. It was nice. You know, you're sitting in your cockpit. Wasn't much movement, but it was awesome. Then when I played Resident Evil 7 with the head bobbing and all that, it, mm. yeah. I mean, I don't really get sick, but I'm just like, I get over it because I can tell it's making me dizzy, you know, right. bad. Yeah, no, I and I agree. I can I can do maybe like 10 minutes of VR at this point before I just start to like get a major headache and I'm just so over it. And it's yeah. funny too, like I don't know if you really uh, you guys are doing this at work, but we had the virtual reality training system put in place. Oh, yeah, the Oculus. Yeah, and that thing is horrible. Like it's mm-hmm. so blurry, it's just so jarring. It it's it's a horrible idea. And it's supposed to like cut down on training and make things easier, but I just don't understand how that's even possible because it's just <laughs> so back to the virtual boy. Whenever they were testing out this tracking system, or uh, they actually realized that kids began to throw up while using it, and they would start to fall over because they would get too dizzy doing it. So, <laughs> which is actually really funny when you think about it. But like, if you look at it, you know, head tracking has always been really tricky to do. And nowadays, people just kind of get motion sick while doing it a little bit, but we're able to create a better depth of field. So remember back then, they only had the red light to do this. So it must have been a lot more jarring to actually go through a world with just a bright, bright red light flashing in your eyes at all times. So it just was a little, right? Um, Have you actually used a virtual boy before? I have. uh, I had a friend that had one and he basically just had the wario game mm. and i think it was the tennis game those are and, the only ones you really needed honestly i mean jack bros is cool but it yeah it was it was just weird you know it was it was kind of like you said like the red just gets kind of nauseating after a while like it's yeah. just it's cool because you can see that like layered effect which I actually really, really like. But yeah, that red, it's just after a while, it, you just get sick of it. Yeah, it's just like beaming right into your brain. So the design of the Virtual Boy is a really interesting one. When people think VR, they think full headset, right? And the original mm-hmm. intent for the Virtual Boy was to be a headset. And that's why they were working on the head tracking and all that fun stuff. So there's a few different factors that went into the overall design of the Virtual Boy. Um, One of them, obviously, is the nausea. The second one is actually during this time, people were deathly afraid of having microchips that close to their brain. So the idea of strapping this thing to their head just struck the like like (laughs) primordial fear into them that they were going to get their brain scrambled. And so people were really (laughs) uncomfortable with that. So they got rid of the band. Right. And they they were starting to try and figure out different ways of using this system and then the final nail in the coffin for this really awkward design for the virtual boy is whenever they hired dr ellie pelly um and they were they're a doctor from the was it shepin's eye research institute in boston and they were brought on to kind of review the virtual boy and any possible you know defects or issues that might come up from using this system and one of the things that they decided on or that they stated was that um, children in which their optic system had not yet fully developed um, m- like might end up developing a lazy eye 
uh, if there's a misalignment between the screens. Now, that's a terrifying idea, right? <laughs> and <laughs> Nintendo is huge on, you know, player safety. They even put out those warnings constantly of like, hey, you've been playing for about 30 minutes. Do you want to take a break? Right? Like, they're mm-hmm. all about that. And they do are, that's the, I think the one big great thing about Nintendo is that they do have the player's health in mind when developing things, which they is really, fit. which, is, yeah. And, you know, which is awesome. But, it's kind of interesting because no other designers or companies seem to have that thought process. Mm-hmm. So it's it's weird. But so with these concerns, the design changed up. And now instead of being a headset, it's now a pair of goggles that are actually reinforced with metal inside so that the mirror doesn't become misaligned or the lenses don't. And then now it's on a big old tripod that you place on your desk. So it went from this really amazing, like, immersive world to, hey, let's put this on the table and shove your head into some goggles real quick. And then now that's your new, like, personal experience. So it kind of got rid of the idea of it being portable. And that kind of defeated the whole purpose of the whole thing. And with these concerns of children developing lazy eyes and whatnot came large, big old warning stickers across all the boxes. And this is yet another thing that kind of led to the demise of the Virtual Boy. Now it's kind of scaring the shit out of people, right? It's just, it's not good. Yeah. So when this system finally did come out, it did not do as well as they had anticipated, obviously. Um, and actually Yokoi was very upset with the way things were going, the way it was marketed, and he wanted to kind of scrap the project earlier, um, and just kind of let it die because he didn't really believe in it anymore. Um, he was actually afraid of it coming out. So yeah, like I said, it failed whenever the critics ended up reviewing the, the, the virtual boy, a lot of things kind of came back to haunt him, like the codename VR32. Um, so it was supposed to be 32-bit, but really it was actually two 16-bit screens. So that, you know, that's where they mm. got the 32 from. It, the VR wasn't really VR. The whole idea of it being a portable system because it had the name Boy in it, right? It was supposed to be the new Game Boy or the Step Up it kind of lost that portability because it had to be set up on a tripod and plugged in. There wasn't a battery packed into it anymore. So it it just kind of, all these little things added up to it just kind of completely failing. And after, I believe, was it two years, it got pulled and discontinued? I think that's right. Yeah. So yeah. It, it really was very short-lived. But here's a little fun fact for you guys, which I think is kind of hilarious. Even though this system is so much of a failure, in 1995, it actually outsold the Sega Saturn. <laughs> so, that's sad. So that just shows you how bad the Sega Saturn sales were because that's just, that's horrible. This is considered one of the biggest failures as far as gaming systems go, and it outsold Sega Saturn. So <laughs> that's pretty bad. <laughs> It's just uh, horrible, horrible stuff. Now, this story does not end happily as well for the designers. Um, I don't know. Did you do you know what happens to the to Yokai and to Becker after all this stuff came out? No, I thought someone died. Actually, both of them died. Oh, so there's two tragic deaths in this. Um, We'll go over Becker's first real quick. Becker um, 
kept trying to chase that dragon and was trying to come up with new things, uh, new inventions after the Virtual Boy had released and failed. But ultimately, it just didn't ever pan out to anything. And eventually, um, Becker ended up, let's see, on October 14th, 2001, he died unexpectedly at his home of a ruptured artery while watching TV at the age of 53. So this is only... uh, this was about six years after the uh, initial release of the Virtual Boy, and he ended up dying of a ruptured artery. Now, for Gungpei Yokoi, his death was a lot more tragic, and there's a little bit of a mystery tied to it as well, some conspiracy theories, which is kind of interesting. But for Yokoi, he got into a minor car accident, right? And while him and the person he got into the car accident with stepped out of the cars to kind of assess the damages, Another car came up and hit them, ended up killing both of them. Jesus. Um, Yeah, and I believe he was 50 years old at the time of this death. Now, one of the conspiracies is that uh, it was actually the Yakuza that put out a hit on Yokoi. Um, You know. Why? There's The reasons are kind of unknown. I wasn't able to find a whole lot of information on this because it's kind of one of those just like etherware weird theories out there it doesn't really have a lot of clout but it is just one of another dark stamp on the virtual boy so yeah that's that's the whole history of the virtual boy and it's not really a happy one (laughs) it's dark it, it gets really dark and i just feel really bad because i mean nintendo is great about pushing the boundaries right Mm -hmm. about about stepping out of the comfort zones for gamers and trying to give them something new and exciting and they just kind of made all the wrong decisions as they went along they really should have not called it the virtual boy because of the correlations with the game boy that was released prior to this and like the whole idea of it being vr from the get-go that should have just not been a thing they should have you know changed things up maybe been a little bit more hidden with the what they were developing and i feel like that's kind of why nintendo now kind of holds things a little bit closer to the cuff right like to their chest when -hmm. it comes to development and releasing things because they don't want anything to be misconstrued and have expectations like blind expectations put on by the media which they still do but i feel like with the process of them holding things a little closer to their chest then they're able to kind of control the misconceptions a little bit better and just yeah tragic end to the virtual boy i mean if they would have done what sega was trying to do with the genesis like making a sega vr it should have been like a compliment to their like current console so instead of like the virtual boy being its own platform Mm -hmm. they should have tried to integrate it with the super nintendo yeah i think it would have been a little bit better you know because with the sega vr they actually had it where it would be normal color of the game like it was supposed to be like you actually see your your genesis games on a 3d plane Mm. and the prototypes are really cool for it i it never really did anything with it i know the master system had kind of like a little joke of a 3d viewer but you know it's sega was really pushing it and if nintendo would have just kind of done the simple way i think it could have been a little bit more successful But the problem with Nintendo is that, you know, when they try to do something new, it either is really well, like, say, the 3DS, Mm -hmm. or 
I mean, I don't really say the Wii was a success, but it was so different. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at the Virtual Boy, you look at the 64DD, and if you want to go back even further, you look at like the Famicom Disk System, like they're really interesting ideas, but they're almost too different. And I feel like Nintendo is great at putting a product out there, but trying to keep the upkeep sometimes they they kind of fail because they either tried too many things at once or because they're the only one doing something like that. They I feel like because there's no competition for them they don't they're not as innovative as they could be you know like there's that fine line of trying to be like a fire starter and pushing it but if you don't have the idea of the future in mind for your console it's hard to create something like that you know you look at the virtual boy and only 22 games came out in the u.s and Mm -hmm. it's sad because it looks cool you know i feel like if the screen would have just been black and white like a game boy screen it would have looked awesome yeah yeah the 3d effect would not really be there but it at least would have been you know a cooler way of you know a game boy right and i think with the success of the game boy the game boy color it really destroyed the virtual boy more than anything else because those were doing so well why would someone want to buy another you know boy system when the Game Boy is already just fantastic. It's portable. Games are pretty great. And you look at the Virtual Boy, and it didn't really have anything interesting. It had, like, one good shooter. You know, Jack Bros was a... It was one of the first twin-stick shooters that didn't use an actual stick because the mm-hmm. controller had two D-pads. So imagine trying to control a twin-stick shooter being able to walk in all directions and shoot in all directions with D-pads. Like it, it was weird and it worked though. Like it surprisingly worked kind of well, but because it was on this console that didn't really take off, it was just kind of ignored. And then obviously the future of twin stick shooters evolved from there. But it's when you look back at it, it's really, it's sad and interesting because I feel like Nintendo's failed consoles are so innovative. You know, you look at the 64 DD and you're like, this is really cool. But at the same time, because it had internet technology with it, it, it wouldn't have worked, especially out here. I mean, if it failed in Japan, you know, out here, it's like at the time, the internet was so bad Mm -hmm. that trying to connect and do anything, it wouldn't have really worked out. And actually the DD sold less copies than the virtual boy. So Which is crazy. It's an even worse of failure than the, the Virtual Boy. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's it's sad, but I feel like Nintendo has learned a lot from it. You know, you look at, like, the 3DS, and I feel like they were able to capture that technology that they wanted in the Virtual Boy and were able to do it with that. Yeah. I, I feel like Nintendo has a very interesting concept when it comes to the, the way that they do their consoles. Like you mentioned, they are very innovative with the way that they handle their stuff. But that's kind of goes along with their core concepts as far as a, a game developer goes, right? And mm-hmm. what they want to do is they want to take old tech and use it in innovative and interesting ways to ensure that the cost stays down for the consumer. 
Yeah. Which, I mean, I can totally get behind that. And I, I that's great. Like, thank you, Nintendo, for allowing us to have something that's affordable, right? We're not looking at when the Switch came out, we weren't looking at a $700 price tag, right? It was affordable still. And it was a new system and it had, you know, it pushed the boundaries of something. But it was old old hardware, right? So it always feels like Nintendo's kind of a step behind, but the way that they use that older tech is so interesting. I feel that like that's what keeps them current and keeps them in the game. And yeah, know, it's, it is, it is really interesting. And like you said, like, yeah, the, the whole idea that they had such major success with the game boy and why would anyone else want, you know, a new, the virtual boy, a new, like a boy system whenever they could just play the game boy. And honestly, they actually could buy the Game Boy for sixty bucks at in 1995 during that time. So a whole system for sixty bucks. Whenever the Virtual Boy when it came out in 1995, they were charging a hundred and eighty dollars for this. Oh, so a hundred eighty dollars and twenty two games? No, thank you. And a game the system that's going to make me want to throw up? No, it's just not going to work out. So it. I don't know. Like I do applaud them for them trying to try something different, right? Mm-hmm. But I I guess it's they have to do that, right? To try and stay ahead of the curve, stay innovative, stay current because they're kind of battling the whole idea of their own core concepts of using older tech. So if they didn't try and push those boundaries and kind of shoot and like be okay with the failures that come with it, then we wouldn't be where we are with the switch and everything like that. So it is it is cool to see the history of it, even though it is sad to see that this did ultimately fail and it did have, kind of have like a grim ending for one of the most amazing uh, designers that Nintendo ever had. So, yeah. I mean, he was around while they were still just playing cards. So like he's been with the company for a long time, long, long time. And that was kind of his last, you know, hoorah for Nintendo was the Virtual Boy, which is it's sad. But yeah. You find yourself staring down the mouth of a dark cave, hearing the low rumble of something large inside. This is it. Everything you have been fighting for lies just within this cave. (laughs) Hey man, what's the matter? This is your big ending fight scene. Yeah, sorry about that. I've just been so tired today. Feels like I've been hit with like two points of exhaustion. You know what? I have just this thing to get you back into the adventuring spirit. Really? Of course. I have a delicious roast from Geek Grind Coffee. Huh. That sounds pretty cool. What kind of brews do they have? They have blends like Dragon's Roast, Dwarven Dawn, Wizard's Mist, and so much more. They have even one celebrating Jim Hansen's The Labyrinth, The Goblin King's Elixir. Whoa, those sound awesome. I'm waking up just hearing about them. Is there an easy way for me to pick up some? I got you. For the fans of our show, if you visit geekgrindcoffee.com right now and enter the promo code GLITCH at the checkout, you will get 20% off your order. Whoa, that's great. So you're saying if I go to geekgrindcoffee.com right now and enter the promo code GLITCH at checkout, I'll get 20% off my order? That's amazing. That's right, yo. (laughs) All right, I'm ready for this adventure. Bring it on. Hey, that's a natural 20. Just like the discount you can get when entering the promo code GLITCH at geekgrindcoffee.com. Level up your morning with Geek Grind Coffee. 
So let's switch gears here. Let's move on from Nintendo. And we're going to be going to PC gaming. Well, starting, oh, yeah. starting with PC gaming and then kind of diving into other systems as well. I mean, this does have some roots in Nintendo too because it did, this game did come out on N64. And later on, there was a Game Boy Advance port of this game, um, but they completely changed it where it wasn't the same game at all anymore. So do you want to start us off and let us know what game we're going to be talking about? We're going to talk about Romero's pet project. Oh, yeah. The one that probably most of you remember just from the stupid ad alone. We're talking about Daikatana. Oh, that's the one where Romero is going to make us all his bitch, right? <laughs> yeah, suck it down. Oh, my gosh. That is the worst advertisement ever. <laughs> It really is. And the sad thing is, is he didn't come up with it either. Oh, my gosh. It was supposed to be like an inside joke from within the game, right? The whole suck it down thing. I think so. Yeah. And what's crazy about that, they were trying to throw an inside joke into the advertisement without anyone actually knowing what the fuck they were talking about. <laughs> God. So, like, can you imagine, like, opening up your, you know, Nintendo Power, whatever, PC Gamer, and like not knowing what this game is. And then you have like, this guy on there saying he's going to make your his bitch or whatever. Like for me, that would immediately turn me off of this game. Be like, all right, man, calm down. Like, don't know who you are. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It was like some, I guess because during, and we'll get into it later, like the time that this game was coming out, they wanted to create a buzz. And this marketer was like, Oh, I can handle it. And basically put that out there. And Romero was like, uh, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, nowadays when he speaks to like GDC and stuff, he apologizes for that ad because he's like, it's ridiculous, you know? Yeah. Which is nice to hear. I mean, yeah. it kind of goes against his whole bad boy nature. But for those of people out there who don't know who John Romero is, do you want to give them a little history on who he is? He is a. Probably one of the most, in my opinion, innovative uh, people in gaming. Mm -hmm. You know, he created Doom, Wolfenstein. Uh, he worked on Quake. Basically, the godfather of first-person shooters. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it goes back further than that with innovating platformers, but he was mostly known for Wolfenstein. Mm -hmm. And if you would like to know more about him and his company, we actually have an episode way back yes. where we go and actually pretty, pretty detailed explanation of it. Yep. It's our little deep dive into id software where we talk about doom. We talk about the Carmack or John's John Carmack, and John Romero, how they've completely changed gaming culture as a whole and they mm -hmm. totally did revamp everything like if you love death matches and games well you make sure to tip your hat to those guys because they're the ones that started that they come up with that concept if you like online play and first person shooters you better thank them because <laughs> they're the ones that kind of started all of this yeah and i mean it's Daikatana is a very interesting game, and it came out at a very strange time for Romero, I would say. it It's tough. It's tough because, like, I, I really want, like, I, like, reading about it and hearing everything that's going on, a part of you really wants to root for him and root for his success. But yeah. then at the same time, you kind of want to see him fail, right? 
because of how like douchey he was. <laughs> so, I mean, like with the success of Doom, id Software um, made Doom, right? And uh, they made Doom 2, all that fun stuff. They made Quake and they're, they're, they're living the dream. They're, they've hit it big. They're, they're invincible. Yeah, they're, they're, they're getting rich. Everything they touch turns to gold from their platform game Commander Keen to now Doom and Quake. Like they, they have so many wonderful hits under their belt. Where they even bought matching Ferraris at one point, right? Like, can you imagine being that kid in the basement playing games and hiding, you know, hiding this this hobby you have, being called like a nerd constantly, to then being able to buy penthouses and a Ferrari and live that rock star lifestyle that you've always dreamed of? It's unheard of. It's kind of crazy. And this is all through video games. They made it possible. But with all this comes really big egos, and John Romero is known to have one of the biggest egos in the industry. And him and Carmack ended up having a falling out, right? Um, and yeah. one of their big arguments was actually an argument that's still like held true to this day, and it's the the idea of what's more important, gameplay or story. And mm -hmm. Carmack was on the side of gameplay, 100%. He's a, he's a programmer. He made the engines. That's his baby, right? Like, if a game doesn't play well, then what's the point? And Carmack was actually known for this little saying of his that a uh, story in games is like a story in a porn film. It's expected, but it's not important. <laughs> so it's kind of funny to hear that because Romero was on the complete other side of it. He was all about design. He was all about looks, flash. He wanted more gore. The music needed to be bumping. Like he was all about theme, story, design, right? Mm -hmm. And he ended up leaving id after a while. He had a falling out with them. Uh, it's kind of, there's a lot of speculation whether he got terminated or if he quit or asked to leave, right? And depending on who you ask, they'll probably give you a different answer. Uh, but he ended up making the company, which... Well, he, Ion Software. Yeah, he made Ion Software. And their big logo, their mantra, right, was uh, design is law. So he basically stepped away from the argument of Carmack and, you know, big old middle finger to him and said, I'm going to make a studio where our focus is the design because that is the most important part. Now, as an artist, I can see why design would be so strong. And I love games with stories in them don't get me wrong like i love journey i love jrpgs ones that are very story focused right but mm -hmm. you need to have solid gameplay to go along with those things and you need someone to have more of a analytical mind when designing to keep things on deadline right even something as basic as that because if you start chasing the design then your games are never going to get made. And that's one of the big things that we see with a lot of games out there that end up failing, um, like Daikatana or even like Duke Nukem Forever, right? Like um, mm. Too Human even. Like they chase the design rather than focusing on just getting a good product out there. So one of the most interesting things I thought about when um, doing some research on Daikatana is the fact that they actually were renting out the quake engine to make <laughs> daikatana even though they were fighting with id software like that just doesn't make any sense and that's just going to cause so much more bad blood in the long run right like you're working with someone you absolutely hate and you just can't get along with but yet you're using their engine so like they actually started like iostorm uh iOS software started like 
bad mouthing id software like in the press and everything and online and in forums and then if you think about it, like they're talking shit and then all of a sudden oh something doesn't go right so they have to call and be like hey can you help us out with this this isn't working <laughs> like that, that just doesn't it doesn't make any sense to me. Their problem was is that they were taking the the tech from Quake 2 <laughs> and trying to make this game. And because that was so new, it they didn't understand how it worked, mm-hmm. you know, compared to the old Quake engine. And it was just too difficult for them to understand it. So basically, you look at Daikantana, and it's really a stripped-down version of, like, Quake. Mm-hmm. meets doom and i mean you can kind of feel it when you play it too yeah like even the ui looks very similar right like mm-hmm. you have the whole armor the bottom health like it's just skinned differently at that point so this game like it's crazy that okay so ios software or ios storm it was ios storm right yeah yeah they end up getting uh they get it fronted a bunch of money. Like, I, I forgot how much it was. It was like an ungodly amount of money. It's like $2 million. I think it was more than that. Was it? I think it was, it's either two or 10. I can't remember. It might have been. I, I thought I saw 26. 26. Oh, Jesus Christ. That's even worse. But uh, you think like they got given this much money from a different company b- because of the name, right? They Like everyone had faith in John Romero because of, the games that they were producing with Wolfenstein, Doom, Doom 2, Quake, right? Like, whatever they touched turned to gold. So they took a lot of risks with them. And whenever John made I.O. Storm, he actually rented out this penthouse office that was not great for programmers. Apparently, there was a lot of issues with where it was because one of the big things about this penthouse (laughs) office was there was a huge skylight across the whole thing. And oh. I don't know about you guys, but sun and plus screen equals mad glare. That sounds horrible, right? So yeah. apparently a lot of the programmers actually made like blanket forts <laughs> around their computers so that they could get rid of that glare. So if you imagine just how annoying that would be. And then you add in <laughs> what this game was in development for what, five years or something like that. Like it was just an ungodly amount of time. It was. Yeah, like it was supposed to come out in 97 right. and then so th- didn't even come out till 2000. Yeah, so three years of development hell. So you imagine li- like working in an office like that where every time you feel like you're making progress and even halfway through development of this game, they changed the engine. They updated it. <laughs> so, But what that meant was they couldn't just port things over. They had to start over from scratch. And that was because they were chasing the design. And when you do that, you just never are going to be happy with what you have. And it's interesting is some of the games that came out using the original engine that they were using are games like Half-Life, which is an amazing game, an amazing title. And it looks so much more polished than what Daikatana came out to be, even though they were trying to use a better, quote unquote, better engine. But Mm -hmm. they pushed it and they... They, you know, by changing things up and making everyone basically just remake everything, like throwing out all their code just to use a newer, better, flashier thing, right? It just doesn't work out that way. There's just so much problems with that. And I think, like, overall, the premise of the game itself is just kind of so convoluted and has so many issues within it that it just doesn't work on its own sense, right? 
Mm-hmm. And it's actually funny. Apparently, the Game Boy Advance port, which, okay, so the original Daikatana was a first-person shooter where you walk around with a big old sword and you kill a bunch of things across all of time, right? Which, cool. Yeah, yeah great concept. Great. Um, but the the Game Boy Advance version is actually a top-down adventure game that looks a lot more like uh, Legend of Zelda Links to the Past. And that actually got much better reviews than the original Daikatana. <laughs> so apparently it worked out better on the Game Boy Advance. Go figure. I actually played it while uh, when we were talking about this episode. I was like, oh, I'm really curious about it. Because I remember seeing like some people post photos of it. And, you know, it is, it's it's good. It's not bad. It Honestly, I would have been happy just with Daikatana being like that. You know, it's I mean, it's nothing innovative, but it's it's fun. It really is like Zelda. Yeah, at least it's a fun game, right? Yeah. Well, here's the big caveat on that. Romero had no nothing to do with that version of the game. He actually licensed it out. So that's not his game at all. <laughs> they just took huh. the concept and made something that actually made sense. <laughs> so it's just ridiculous. Now, Daikatana. Daikatana actually just means big sword in Japanese, right? And that kind of pays homage to, you know, the BFG, the big fucking gun and all that. So instead of a big old gun, you get big sword. So that's what Daikatana means. And that's the whole point of this. And Innovation. Yeah, it's so clever, right? It, with them being so heavy on design as law and trying to innovate and make something interesting, they couldn't come up with a better name. But anyway, and the main <laughs> character, your hero character is named Hero. But H I R O. So once again, holy shit, what amazing innovation, right? And I would have to say this story, when I was looking through it, it's just so like it has potential, I guess. But the way they executed it was just so poor. Yeah. Where they actually have like the buddy system in place, which is kind of cool. Like if you have good AI to go with you having partners that just kind of fight alongside you is really interesting. And I I do have to say that they were innovative in at least trying that out. But there's a lot of issues with that where you actually can't complete a level unless your buddy makes it to the end with you as well. And your buddies, they did not navigate the geometry of the levels very well. They would get stuck on ladders. They would get stuck. Yeah, they're stupid. Yeah, they're just completely dumb and here's the big kicker that i was like why the fuck would you put this in your game is there's friendly fire your ai buddies can hurt you (laughs) in the game and it's just horrible and you would make it to the very end of a level there's a lot of reviews on this where they make it to the end of the level and the ai character would get stuck on something and they have to start all the way over again and that's just horrible game design now much later on there was a patch that got put into place where you can actually save whenever you want, which did help. So as soon as your you saw your AI character get stuck, you can just refresh real quick, go back like two minutes instead of having to replay the whole level. But that still isn't fun. <laughs> like nobody wants to do a soft reset every time their AI companions get stuck on something. It's just not, it's not good. Nobody likes that. So... Another big thing, too, that kind of plays into the idea of design is law as well, and it ended up being a big thing that people hated was, I mean, as soon as you turn on Daikatana, the first 10 minutes of this game is actually just a long-ass cutscene. And 
for that time and for what Romero is known for, nobody wants that. When you turned on Doom, you instantly were in it. Like, there you go. Boom, demon, shoot him in the face. Yeah. But here, it's turn the game on and wait. Wait 10 minutes while you watch these puppets basically move around. And if I remember correctly, Half-Life, their mouths at least moved during the cutscenes, right? Mm-hmm, they did. And that came out in the same exact years that Katana did. Now, whenever you look at these characters during these 10-minute long cutscenes, the mouths don't move, and the way that they talk, they just kind of bob their head up and down like little marionettes. So it just really took you out of the game completely. So it just it's just insane to think that a game that, a, a company that really prided itself on design and pushing the envelope and chasing that that new big thing was okay with releasing something like this. And I don't really think it's that they were okay with releasing it. They had a lot, like their investors were breathing down their neck and saying, this game needs to come out now because they're wasting so much money in development of this. So they kind of had no choice. And if it was up to them, I feel like Romero would still be developing this game to this day. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. yeah. I don't think. And yeah, it it's sad because I think if the game would have released when it was supposed to, granted Quake 2 came out like right around that release date, mm-hmm. which probably would have slaughtered this game. But say it did come out, I think it would have done a lot better because this coming on 2000, there was another big engine slash game that blew up in 99 and to me it was like the i don't want to say the doom killer but unreal tournament yep and with that you got unreal engine which i mean basically (laughs) is kind of the same thing right like "Hmm, what's that and you know it came out after all these successes with games that kind of had that same engine so you release this game that's pretty broken I mean, of course, it's not going to do well. And I don't know. I mean, my experience with the game, and I know this is even worse, but I remember renting it from Blockbuster for the N64. Oh, God. And it was actually exclusive to Blockbuster. So, yeah, it it was bad. Not only Um, did it have crappy graphics, but everything was blurry. It, it was very blurry. There was barely any cutscenes, and Ugh. it's not surprising because it came from the publisher Chemco, which it doesn't really have the best track record, especially in recent years with what they release. But that's that's a whole different episode. But uh, yeah, it was. I don't know. I feel like I never got to play the true version of it, but after doing a lot of research on it, I'm like, well, I didn't really miss much. Like mm-hmm. the N64 version at least was stripped down, so I didn't waste my time yeah. completely. And it's supposed to be a pretty long game too. Yeah. So dealing with all these issues plus a pretty long game, it just all of it just does not add up to something that's enjoyable. So it's just yeah, it just failed, failed horribly. <laughs> and it's actually it's on pretty much every time if you google worst games ever made this game is probably going to be on that list every time oh, yeah. <laughs> so and i believe it actually won an award though um i, I forgot when for what it, i forgot when it was but it actually won the gaming coaster award <laughs> oh my god <laughs> so, so hey at least they won something yeah so bad you can make a coaster out of it so hey there's a you know a happy ending to this story <laughs> and it's you know looking at the end of it i mean ion 
with their games, this was kind of like the nail in the coffin for their studio mm-hmm. because there was two. Um, there was one half that produced, I forgot the first game, but they also did Anachronics, which actually is kind of interesting. I've played that. It's a turn-based RPG mm-hmm. by them. And it's different. It's a, imagine a, I don't say cyberpunk, but it's futuristic kind of detective RPG. Mm-hmm. It's, it has a lot of good ideas, but because, you know, Romero being Romero and all of them, it, it could have been better. Right. And then you had this game, which kind of sealed the deal for them. But their sister studio released, well, at least one really big game. Mm-hmm. They did the third game to Thief, which is a pretty, was a popular series back then. Right. But they also made Deus Ex. Yep. So they could make good games. Yeah. But it felt like as soon as Romero got more and more involved in it, then it kind of went downhill from there. So that's kind of where the issues would come in and go. So. Yeah, too many ideas and not enough someone saying like, dude, just just stop it there. Yeah. And go on. And, you know, that's how Doom worked. It's like you had one guy who was so focused on the gameplay. You have another person on the story. You both can kind of clash a little bit to get things done. Yeah, exactly. When you get one person full reign over one side of it, they're just going to be stuck in that. Yeah, he didn't have Carmack anymore to tell him to rein him in. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us this week. I hope you guys enjoyed our little discussion talking about some failed systems that were around. Right. And we that some of them ended in tragedy. But when you look at these titles, there's a lot of innovation that was put forth between the consoles and the games. Right. They really did push the envelope and they were trying something big and new. So you kind of have to give them credit for that, at least. But unfortunately, they did ultimately fail in the long run. (laughs) Yeah. So if there are any games out there or game systems that you guys remember that you have experience with as far as uh, what would be quote unquote failures, uh, send them our way. Let us know. Um, We'd love to hear from you guys. And maybe we'll even talk about them in a future episode. You know, maybe what's your experience with the Wonder Swan, perhaps? (laughs) Hey, the Wonder Stone was cool, or, man. or the Engage, or even one of those. Something interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so thank you guys once again for listening. That's going to do it for us. And uh, bye. Toodles. Toodles.